Good morning. If this is your first time here with us, we are really glad to have you. Thanks for for joining us this morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders of our church. One of my greatest disappointments in ministry is when people come face to face with Jesus Christ and then try to avoid him thinking they can retain a sense of ownership of their lives. Once I was reaching out to an international student who studied the the Gospel of John and the Bible with me for a semester. At the end of that semester, he could articulate the fact that Jesus had died for him to give him eternal life with God. And then he walked away from that saying that he could never bear to give up his family, which would, who would certainly reject him if he became a follower of Christ. Countless other students, neighbors, and family members have their own values, their own dreams, and they think of themselves as owners of these things. It could be their career aspirations, their love lives, their perception of their moral freedom, or it could be disappointment and bitterness from past experiences. And in every case, their paralysis to give these things up, it comes from the belief that I have something that's important to me. I have something of value, and that thing is mine. I will not give it up, not even for someone who claims to be God and who claims to have my best interests at heart. What about you? Who are here today? Do you see yourself as a master or as a slave? Are you in charge or are you indentured? Is there anything you can claim to be your own that God has no interest in? And would you be willing to consider with me this morning whether there might be a better way? A way of such freedom and peace that you'd be foolish not to take it? We're studying the Bible's book of Exodus as a church, and today we come to verse 29 of chapter 12. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 35. In the book of Exodus, the people of Israel have been slaves to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, for generations. And we join them now in chapter 12 on the very last night of their slavery to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God told them in the previous passage to find the perfect substitute lamb to die in their place. And he told them to get ready for a new beginning, for the rebirth of this nation. And you might think that God will deliver them from slavery into freedom, but don't be misled. He's not taking them into an unquestioned, unhindered freedom, but he's actually taking them into a new kind of slavery. And in the rest of the book of Exodus, actually even up to this point, the, the request has been to Pharaoh, let my people go that they might serve me. And that word serve is the same word that's used of their slavery to Pharaoh. They are brought 
from slavery to a harsh master into slavery to a good and gentle master. From slavery to a man to slavery to the God of all the earth. Make no mistake, God owns these people. He owns everything they have, even everything they are. And he will go to great lengths to demonstrate his ownership of them in today's passage. I have four simple points for you this morning. All of them drive to one central truth. Like it or not, God owns you. We will see that God owns death and life. God grants favor and watches everything. God knows who are his. And God owns his people. Let me pray for our time in the word and then I'll read the first section. Father in heaven, thank you for revealing yourself to us and for showing us all that we need to know about you that we can have life and peace with you. We pray that you would help us to see you more clearly this morning. Help us to understand that you are our master, our Lord, our owner, and help us to give of ourselves completely and fully for your service. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 12, I'd like to read verses 29 through 33. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. In chapter 11, God promised to strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt. And now we hit the point where he follows through on that word. And note the sweeping manner in which this death is narrated. In verse 29, the Lord struck down all the firstborn. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, even to the firstborn of the captive, even the firstborn of the livestock. In verse 30, we're told there's a great cry in all Egypt. And then I think we get one of the most chilling statements. There was not a house where someone was not dead. In verses 31 and 32, Pharaoh and all the Egyptians kicked these people out of their land. And in verse 33, everyone else in Egypt who was not a firstborn, and so they're still alive, they now fear for their lives. We shall all be dead. If this keeps up, this God will kill us all. The point is this. Pharaoh thought he owned the lives of the Israelites. And he's thought all along that he has owned his own life and the lives of his own people. 
But you see, God wants to make a point, and God is willing to strike down the prominent members of every household in Egypt to show them that he owns them all. Pharaoh does not own a soul. Their lives are in God's hands, dangling from threads over the bottomless pit of hellfire. And his hands can cut those threads at any time. Or his hands can catch their fall and bring them to his bosom. How does this apply for us? Please make no mistake this morning. You may feel in control of your life for now, for a time, but the feeling is an illusion. You are but a feather floating on the breeze, and who is to say that you will ever land in a safe place or that you will even land at all? You may think you have a great life, a life full of honor and respect, full of wealth and full of neat devices and happiness and full of security and friendship and moral freedom or or even full of love. But that life is not yours to keep. All that you have, you will lose. The issue is not whether you will lose what you have. The issue is whether you will lose it cheerfully for the greater good or whether the loss will break you. God owns death and life. That's not all. Second, God grants favor and watches everything. So much for the bad news. Let me show you some good news. Verses 34 to 42. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened bread, pardon me, they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Here is the big moment, the biggest moment so far In this book of Exodus, the slaves of Israel finally leave Egypt. The Egyptians drive them out so quickly they don't have time to let their dough rise before they can bake it. In verses 35 and 36, we're told that they leave Egypt with an incredible amount 
of stuff. You see that? They left with silver and gold, jewelry and clothing. They plundered the Egyptians. And some suggest this plundering of the Egyptians served as a retroactive payment for all their years of slavery. But I don't think any size of payment could make up for what they had suffered as a people. They leave with a lot of stuff. And they don't just leave with more stuff. They also leave with a lot more people. Did you catch that in verse 38? A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock. This mixed multitude that goes up with them, that means there weren't just Israelites leaving Egypt. This means a lot of other people joined them. Almost certainly it included some defectors among the Egyptians, perhaps also some other enslaved peoples. But they grew as a nation with all these other people who are going out with them. These people get out, and they get out with a lot more stuff, and they get out with a lot more people. Why? What does God want to show us here in the moment when they leave the land of Egypt? I think he wants to show us two things. First, in verse 36, we are told that the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. That's why the Egyptians gave them all their stuff. The same God who has the power over life and death also has the power over favor and oppression. He owns these people and he owns their situation and he owns the Egyptians. God can grant, he can get his people out and grant them favor in a single night whenever he wants. It's the first thing he wants to show us, that he is the Lord who grants favor, grants his people favor. But second, look at verse 42. It was a night, this special night on which they came out. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The second thing God wants to show us is that God was not, never, absent, blind, or aloof. He was watching all along. And he was watching all this night when he sent the destroyer to strike down every firstborn, when the Israelites had killed their lambs, and painted the blood on the doorposts that destroyer would pass over them. God sees. He saw the blood. He saw what his people had suffered. He saw what they were going through. None of it was mysterious to him. None of it was secret. He is not distant. He is not blind. He is not silent. God sees and God knows everything. He pays attention. Putting... These first two points together from these first two paragraphs, we must see that God is like a fisherman sorting out the bad fish from the ones he wants to keep. He owns death. He grants death to some. He grants favor to others. The bad fish, he throws them out and he shows favor to others. God is like a farmer harvesting wheat. He disposes of the chaff while storing aside his wheat for his personal use. And he is like a protective father fighting against those who would seek to harm his beloved children. How does this apply? Please remember that the approval and favor of other people is a fleeting thing. God can give it and God 
can take it away, but his approval is eternal. You don't need to live for the approval of other people, for their favor. You don't need to live for it, and you don't need to die from lack of it. It's far more important for you to know that God sees everything. And if you are in Christ, if you trust in Christ, you are following Christ, God approves of everything he sees. Because of Christ, and he makes you more like Christ. It's far more important to know that God watches everything because when you know that he sees everything about you and he still protects you from ultimate harm, then it doesn't matter so much what other people think. He is the one who grants favor and who watches everything. Third, God knows who are his. God knows who are his. Verses 43 to 51. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So the text here very suddenly moves from, from uh, the narrative of what happened that night to instruction regarding what must happen in the future to celebrate this event. And what is the key instruction? Verse 43, the, the main thing here is, no foreigner shall eat of the Passover. And this paragraph goes on to clarify exactly who may eat of it and who may not. Your hired slaves may eat of it only if they become circumcised. All the congregation of Israel must eat of it, but no foreigner may eat of it. No uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Why is this section here? I think it's to make a profound point about what just happened on the night the people left Egypt. Verse 51, we're told, on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. You must know that the Lord, Yahweh, is the one who has done this. The Lord cares about who gets to celebrate this event in the future. And there must be no confusion about who is a member of this congregation and who is not. There is no gray area here. There is no flexibility. Certain people may celebrate and certain people may not. Some are in and some are out. Either you are part of the people or you are not. Either you are a member of the congregation or you are just the hired help. And in making these distinctions, God is claiming full ownership of this history, this ceremony, this nation. These people. This is what the biblical concept of redemption is all about. 
Even though the word redeem is not used in this passage, it'll come up in the, the next section. Redemption means paying for something you lost in order to buy it back. Redemption just means paying for something you lost in order to buy it back. But you have to know the result of redemption is not unhindered freedom for the thing that was purchased. The result is that the purchaser now owns the thing he paid for. These people are redeemed. And God demonstrates his ownership by defining the boundaries of membership in their community. Some people are within those boundaries. Others are without. There must be no confusion or crossover or equivocation. How does this apply to us? What does this mean? If you're here today and you don't yet follow Jesus, today could be the day. It's never too late for you, and you are never so far on the outside that you can't become one of his people. But you need to know that as long as you do not follow Jesus, you are, in fact, on the outside. Perhaps you've felt on the outside because of your race or because of your your gender or even your personality or your sexuality or your history. And we are so glad you're here. We want you to know that this God wants all people to be saved. He wants all people to know the truth. And we are delighted to have you with us. We hope you can find the life that is only in Jesus. For those of you whom God has redeemed by paying with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, you need to know that God now owns you. He paid for you. And if God does not own you, you demonstrate that you may not yet have been redeemed by him. God knows exactly who are his. Do you? How do we know if we belong to God? How do I know if I'm a member of God's community, if I've been redeemed? Well, the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark. The New Testament book of 1 John actually gives us three really specific tests so that you can know if you are a child of God. Those three tests are, do you confess Jesus Christ as your master, as your Lord? Second, do you obey Jesus' commands? Third, do you love other Christians? Do you confess Jesus Christ as your master? Do you obey Jesus' commands? Do you love other Christians? These three things are not the cause of your redemption. That's not why God has rescued you. They are the evidence of your rescue. Because if God rescues you, if he pays for you, he now owns you. And because he owns you, you confess Jesus as Lord and you obey his commands and you love other Christians. These things show that you've been bought with a price and that you are not your own. That you are a slave of God through his son, Jesus Christ. God knows who are his because he owns his people. And that's our last point. He drives this point home. God owns his people. For those, if we're reading this and we don't yet see the main idea that God owns his people, the the Lord gives them and he gives us a major object lesson in chapter 13 to teach the Israelites this lesson that he owns them. And he wants to teach them this lesson for generations to come. Exodus 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, 
Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey You shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Let me explain what's going on here. In verses 3 through 10, we get instructions. The instructions are repeated for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There are to be seven days of feasting on which no work is to be done. No leaven is to be eaten. What that means is they're not to keep any parts of dough from one batch to the next as a starter. They need a fresh start every time they bake their bread. And to remind them of how This is to remind them of how walking with this God is like new life. It is a fresh start. Out with the old life and in with the new life. And there's nothing in this paragraph that's new. All of this we were told earlier in chapter 12. But the repetition serves as a reminder. He's already reminding them of what to do and what this means just as this ceremonial feast would itself serve as a reminder year after year after year after year. Because they and we need to keep being reminded that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price, and we constantly get a fresh start in Christ. Friends, if you've made the wrong choices this week, 
and you continue to suffer the consequences of them. If you have tried and failed yet again to speak graciously or to love selflessly or to purify your thought life or to honor God with your body, if you have tried and failed, there's good news for you. Or if you have withstood an aggressive assault from the outside, increased suffering in the recent weeks, or misunderstandings from others, or persecutions, doesn't matter whether what you're dealing with is from the inside or from the outside. If you just feel beat down, you feel weary and you feel discouraged, you need a reminder. Even though we just talked about it last week, you need a reminder that you have a fresh start. You get a fresh start this week. Today is a new day. This week is a new week. Jesus Christ is a God of new beginnings. Come, lay your cares before the Lord Jesus. Trust in Him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Remind yourself that He is your King. And renew your commitment once again to do whatever it is He asks of you. And then, go, try again. The past is past, and it's never too late to begin again. And those are the instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread in verses 3 through 10. But notice how those instructions are bracketed. In verses 1 and 2, God says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. And why are they to do that? Because whatever is the first to open the womb is mine. And then after, in verses 11 to 16, we're given instructions for how to consecrate the firstborn. How to treat these firstborns as special possessions of the Lord. Verse 13 especially spells it out. The beginning of the verse says that of your animals, the firstborn of the animals, they can have their necks broken unless you choose to redeem them, to pay for them with the blood of a substitute lamb. In the end of verse 13, he says, for human firstborn, you must never break their necks. You must always redeem them with the blood of a substitute lamb. But you see, there are two categories here. There are those who are killed and those who are redeemed. Just like what they went through at Passover, where the Egyptians were killed and the Israelites were redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And he gives them this object lesson every time they give birth to another child. And every time their animals give birth to offspring. When reading this, we should be thinking about what just went down in Egypt, how God passed through and killed all the firstborn of Egypt, but he redeemed the firstborn of Israel with the blood of a lamb. And they are to explain this to their children in verses 14 and 15. What does this mean? Well, God killed the Egyptians, but he spared us, and he brought us out of the land of Egypt. What is the point? The point here is that God wants them to know that he owns them. Whatever is the first To come out of the womb is mine. God owns their firstborn. And because he owns their firstborn, that's this picture. He owns the most important thing. That means he owns it all. He owns their firstborn. That means he owns all their children. That means he owns their animals. That means he owns everything. He owns everything. And to make this point, some animals must die. And All humans must have a lamb take their place. And it happens over and over 
and over again so that God says, that one is mine. That one is mine. And that one over there, that's mine too. Mine. And this master is good and kind. He spares the lives of his people. He brings them into a good land. He takes care of all their enemies. He protects them from the diseases and the plagues of Egypt. Friends, the solution to tyranny is not complete personal freedom. The best solution to tyranny is benevolence. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we worship a God who is benevolence embodied. The one who himself became that lamb. To be our substitute, to take our place, to pay for us so we could have life, to bring us into close friendship with God and to make us all we were created to be. And I read in chapter 12 when he said that, uh, that they, they should not break the bones, 12 verse 46, they shall not break the bones of this Passover lamb. And the Gospel of John quotes that verse when Jesus is hanging on the cross to make the point for us that Jesus is this substitute lamb. And friends, you can't avoid this God. And you can't reduce his role in your life to anything less than complete and total ownership of you and mastery of all things. And trust me, you couldn't have it any better than to have this gracious, loving, benevolent, and lavishly generous God as your owner and operator. Anything else is like staying in Egypt and suffering terribly. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are the Lord and we confess that you own us. You are our master. We are your slaves. Help us to trust you, to trust that you are good and kind and you have our best interests in mind, just as you have said, and that you offer to us the life we have always longed for, the life that we look for in so many other places. Lord, you own death. You grant favor. You see everything. You know who are yours and you own your people. And may we be transformed by these truths that we might live unto you for your service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.